Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be here with you all, whether you're joining us in person or if you're with us online. I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith, and this is our fourth week of a series on the book of Esther where we've been talking about what it looks like to live out our faith in a world that can sometimes seem hostile to living a vibrant, life-giving walk with Jesus. And today we're specifically looking at the fourth chapter in Esther. But before we do that, let's just take a few minutes and pray together. Lord, we're thankful for another chance to gather as your people and to sing songs and to look at Scripture. Lord, we are praying today that your words um, strike us and help us live a more faithful and consistent walk with you. God, we do have some concerns in our church body that we want to lift up. We think about the Warners, and we praise you for the new life that's come into their family with their little baby. But God, you know that they're dealing with some sickness as well, and so our prayer is that you give them rapid recovery because they've got a newborn and they're dealing with illness in their house at the same time. So Lord, help them through this. God, we pray for the rest of our service. Give us ears to hear. Help us have hearts that are um, ready to praise you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So here's an interesting fact about the book of Esther. Not everyone in the history of the church has been as eager to read it as we are at Faith Covenant Church. In fact, for the first seven centuries of the Christian church, we don't have a single commentary written on the book of Esther. Exodus, we've got tons of commentaries written by the early church. Matthew, got a bunch of those. Psalms, you know it, we've got those as well. But Esther, not a single one. And John Calvin, uh, we don't have any record of him ever preaching or writing anything on the book of Esther. And Luther, now Luther is a whole nother story completely. Luther didn't just avoid Esther. He outright disliked the story and once said this. He said he wished it had not come to us at all because it has too many heathen unnaturalities. If you've been attending at all, you know that it is full of heathen unnaturalities. We've got human trafficking, violence, nepotism, sexual exploitation, unregulated power, assassination attempts, plans for genocide. That sounds like heathen unnaturalities to me too, Luther. But honestly, the thing that has made this book so challenging for so many people is the moral and ethical ambiguity that we see with our protagonists. Think a little bit about the religious system of the Jews by this point in the Bible. The Jews had historically found themselves in a unique position where they had been specially called by God to be his people. And as a result, God had given them very specific instructions on how he wanted them to live. And much of what people believed connected them to God was an expression of an extremely unique Jewish ethnic identity that was tied into the teachings of the first five books of the Old Testament. Being Jewish and practicing the law that God had given them was what life was all about. 
So if you belong to the people of God, then you are supposed to dress like a Jew dressed. You are supposed to eat what the Jews ate. You are supposed to practice the festivals and the sacrifices that the Jews were supposed to practice. You are supposed to have a good, strong Jewish name. And you were meant to marry another God-fearing Jewish person so you could procreate and have the next generation do the exact same thing. But when we look at our main characters in the book of Esther we see something different. Instead of seeing a Jew living in Persia, like maybe Daniel did, who remained faithful and stood for his convictions, we see two Jews who have very little to differentiate themselves from the pagan world that surrounded them. They had names that were decidedly not Jewish. I mean, Mordecai, it's a derivative of the name of the Persian deity Marduk. I can understand taking on a Persian name so people can pronounce your name a little bit easier, but taking on the human name equivalent of a Persian deity's name, that was unheard of for a Jew. And Esther's got the same thing going. Her name is a derivative of the name of the Persian deity Ishtar. And Mordecai, he didn't have some humdrum marketplace job that allowed him to keep his family afloat. No, he was an official in the court of the king. His job, it was literally to help support King Xerxes, who stood against everything that the Jews stood for. This would be like a Christian working for the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And then there's this whole issue of Esther being sent to join the harem of King Xerxes. This is such a hard aspect of the story. I mean, we don't see Mordecai protesting at all the taking of his adoptive daughter into the harem. And then we're totally left wondering in regards to the motives of Esther. What I mean is that the text, it does not give us any insight into whether Esther was appalled at being selected by the king to be his next night of entertainment, or if she felt honored or even excited about the opportunity to become the next queen. We don't know. We aren't offered any insight into the inner dialogue or feelings of our characters. But we do know this. When Esther was in the king's harem for 12 months, being given spa treatments and presumably being taught exactly how to please the king, she worked at winning the favor of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. And when it finally came time for her to go into the king's bedchambers, she took the advice of Haggai and intentionally only took things with her that Haggai suggested. You can use your imagination for what that means. I in no way want to belittle how Esther was trafficked, wronged, and objectified, but our story also does not paint her as someone who was appalled at her circumstances passively accepting her lot. In fact, you can easily read this and think that Esther was actively engaged in trying to win this competition and become the next queen, which I guess is fine and all. Maybe she's trying to make lemonade out of lemons, but consider the original audience of this letter. They would have been very aware of passages like this from Deuteronomy 7, which says about other nations other than Israel, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. 
do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. For Esther to have done anything other than protest and refuse to be an active participant was unthinkable. And for Mordecai to have not sacrificed himself to keep his adoptive daughter from this fate, also wrong, dishonorable. It is hard to read the first few chapters of this book and get the feeling like Mordecai and Esther are bright, shining examples of Old Testament faithfulness to God. So for the first two and a half chapters of this book, we see two characters who are most likely in many ways either compromising their Jewish identity or conforming to the Persian way of life. But then in chapter 3, something changes with Mordecai. We don't know exactly what it was, but something happened when Haman demanded that Mordecai bow down to him that reignited part of Mordecai's dedication to living out his Jewish God-fearing roots. Maybe it was the fact that Haman was an Agagite. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit reigniting something in Mordecai's soul. We are not entirely sure. But something did happen where Mordecai said, you know what? I am not going to bow down to Haman because I am a Jew and I only bow down to the one true king of the universe. This is a huge moment in the story. It's a celebration moment. For all of you Lord of the Rings nerds out there, it's like when the shards of Narsil are reforged and given to Aragorn, and he accepts his call to be the king of Gondor. Jews, when they heard this story read, when it says that Mordecai refused to comply because he was a Jew, they would have clapped. They would have hooted and reveled in Mordecai's choice. This is a pivotal moment. One of our protagonists has finally accepted the call to live as he was always meant to live, as a Jew living out the life God had commanded him. Now, if we were writing this story, this is how we would want things to go from this point. We would want Mordecai to realize that hiding his Jewish faith from the world isn't right, so he takes off his mask and he stands up for his convictions, and then we would want God to reward him for his faithfulness. You know, maybe end up getting a promotion at work. And with his new influence he has at work, he's able to tell Xerxes about the one true God. Mm -hmm. And then Xerxes gets saved. Maybe takes a few years off being king to go to Bible college in Jerusalem. And then him and Esther, they plant a mega church where Xerxes is the pastor and Esther runs the women's ministry. And together, Xerxes and Esther have 14 kids, all of whom become missionaries to the Huns in Mongolia. And everyone gets fat and rich and lives happily ever after until they die in their sleep at ripe old ages. If it was up to us, that is how we would want to write this story. But that's not what happens. In our story, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, and things go from normal to extremely bad. Like we saw last week, Haman, when he hears that Mordecai is Jewish, he uses this opportunity to convince the king to have a state-sponsored genocide against all of the Jewish people in the kingdom. 
Just think about that. Mordecai finally decides to openly express his faith in God. And what are the consequences? Well, the government gets upset and plans to kill him and everyone who is like him. This is the total opposite of what we would want to happen. When we choose to be obedient to God's ways, we want to be rewarded. We want things to go well. We want life to be easy. But instead, for Mordecai and all of his fellow Jews, things go terribly wrong. In fact, if we were just to close our Bibles at this point of the story, most of us would be asking, if that's what happens when I choose to live out my faith, if life is going to get harder, more difficult, maybe even worse when I show my faith, why would I ever try to be outwardly faithful to God and his ways? And that's the question that we're trying to answer today. Why should I take off my mask and live out my faith if it has the potential to make life harder? Why not just keep flying under the radar? Why not just keep my faith to myself and hide it from everyone else? And to talk about this, we're going to look at Esther chapter 4. So if you brought your Bibles, you can turn to Esther 4. If not, it'll be up here on the screens for you to read along. This is chapter 4, starting in verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So chapter 4, it opens up with a total role reversal for Mordecai. This guy who has hidden his faith up until this point not only refuses to bow down to Haman, but now he is also at the king's gate, which is kind of like the Senate floor of Susa, and he is protesting with the Jews. He puts on sackcloth, he wipes himself in ashes, he wails, he weeps, he refuses to eat. Mordecai has embraced his Jewishness and is displaying his dismay for the world to see. And as you can probably guess, Esther, who lives in the palace, starts hearing about this crazy Jewish guy named Mordecai, who works for the king and is publicly weeping and wailing at the king's gate in sackcloth and covered in ashes. I mean, if something were to happen like that in front of uh, the capital in Lansing, we'd probably hear about it. So Esther, she hears about it. And our passage says, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him and put on to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathik, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Esther, she has not heard the news yet. She's been sequestered in the king's palace for like five or six years now and is totally in the dark about Haman's plan to kill all of the Jews. So how does she respond to Mordecai? Well, not knowing why he's upset, she sends some respectable Persian clothes and basically says, dude, put on some normal clothes. Exhibit at least a modicum of self-respect here. But Mordecai, he will not go back to hiding his Jewishness. He refuses the clothes and so Esther has her eunuch investigate a little bit more. This is verse 6. 
So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of Haman, the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Mordecai, he gives this eunuch a rundown of why he's upset, and he sends the message back to Esther. This is where it gets really interesting. Because if we remember back to chapter 2, verse 10, Mordecai's explicit instructions to Esther were for her to hide the fact that she was Jewish. But here, Mordecai asks Esther to make the same shift that he himself has made. He tells her to go to the king and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. You see that? Mordecai wants her to now, after there has been an edict to eliminate all of the Jews from the empire, to go into the king and reveal her ethnic identity that she has gone to great lengths to hide for the last five or six years and plead with this man, this ruthless man, this man who has used her as his plaything to ignore his most trusted advisor and spare this ethnic minority that he's been told are not faithful to him as king. Let's just put ourselves in Esther's position and think about all of the reasons that she has to say no to this. First of all, she could easily see what's going on here as simply not her problem. Think about it. You've got Haman. His ego is the size of Jupiter. And you've got Mordecai, who for all this time has had no problem going against the grain and and going with the grain and blending in. But for some reason, unknown to Esther, he decides that now is the time to stop hiding his Jewish heritage. And because he upset someone who he knew was tyrannical and egotistical, now he wants Esther to do something about it? This sounds like a Mordecai problem, not an Esther problem. If I were Esther, I'd be like, dude, Mordecai, sounds like you and Haman are acting like a bunch of macho dudes in a measuring contest. This is kind of your fault. You started it. Why don't you fix it? And besides, for Esther, why does she really care? Xerxes is killing people all the time. Truth be told, she probably doesn't have that much attachment to the Jews anymore. She goes by a Persian name. She lives in Persian luxury. She doesn't live like a Jew, act like a Jew, hang around with Jews. Not to sound crass, but she doesn't have a whole lot that's tethering her to these people anymore. And she probably never will. Why would she be more inclined to do something about these people than she would about any of the other people groups that Xerxes has annihilated? It's not like she's really associating herself with God's people right now. And with that, she's honestly starting to get a good thing going at the palace. She's been queen for five years, and finally, the king has started to move on to the rest of his harem. We're about to read that the king hasn't been to visit her in 30 days. 
things are really looking up. She gets to live in luxury with food and spa treatments and a summer home and a winter home. And her one main responsibility of satisfying the king's carnal desires, he has started to look elsewhere for that. He's now got other girls in the harem. Why would she go into the king and upset that balance? And speaking of upsetting the balance, doesn't Mordecai know how dangerous it is to go before the king without him first asking to see you? And that's what Esther finally decides to say back to Mordecai. She has the eunuch Hathik take her message back to him, and she says, All of the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now this is the pivotal point in the entire book because Esther is confronted with the decision of decisions. Do I put it all out there, risk losing it all, go public with my Jewish heritage, or do I lean into one of my many excuses and just keep living my life like it is, keeping my Jewishness and my heritage as a God-fearer a secret from everyone? In a lot of ways, this is the same question that many of us face. While we're probably not being asked to approach a narcissistic psychopathic killer to intervene on behalf of a nation, we are often put in positions where we get to choose whether or not we want to boldly live out the type of life Jesus desires for us or not. You can probably think of examples. Maybe it's that your friends love making fun of Christians, and one of them goes on a rant about how stupid the Christian faith is. No one really believes that Jesus rose from the dead, right? How do you respond? Or maybe things have been hard in your marriage. You both work way too much. Communication has been rough. Intimacy isn't there. You're lonely. You want someone to care for you. And one of your coworkers, they're attractive, attentive, available. They've made that clear to you by texting, hey, you want to get drinks tonight? What will you tell them? Or imagine you're having a burger with your buddies, and one of them tells a joke that makes fun of African Americans. Everyone else is laughing at it, but you know it was wrong. Will you laugh? Or will you mention that you don't think it's right to continue to further wrong stereotypes that divide us? Or perhaps you're the newcomer on a sales team, and job opportunities are scarce, and you don't want to mess this up. The other members of your team welcome you to a dinner, and they start talking about how they pad their expense accounts. They tell you that they don't get caught because everyone on the team agrees to do it. They want you to agree as well. What do you do? Or maybe it's just that you want to make Jesus a bigger part of your marriage, but you've never done it in the past. And starting to pray together or do family devotions or make church a priority, it seems so awkward to start doing now. Just like we can imagine Esther coming up with a thousand valid excuses for why it's better to just hide our faith, we can imagine a thousand excuses for our own situations. Things would just be better if I go with the flow. If I choose to do the right thing, I might lose my lifestyle. 
If I do what I feel like God is asking me, it might make my relationships harder. And my life, it's so comfortable. And my friends might think I'm strange. And I might not be able to spend as much money on myself. And I've never really lived that way before. It's going to be so weird and awkward to start now. Why would I risk those things? Why would I risk my life getting harder? Is it really worth it to take off my mask and show the world my faith? Well, check out how Mordecai counsels her. This is verse 12. When Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is the part of Esther we love to put on our coffee mugs. Who knows but that you have come for a time such as this. But what is it really that Mordecai is telling Esther here? Well, first he says, Don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of the Jews will escape. This is one of the most important pieces of advice that we can take out of Esther. Mordecai is basically saying, Esther, you are having to choose between death and death. Maybe if you go into the king, he will kill you. But if you choose inaction, they're going to find out that you're a Jew and still kill you. You're choosing between death and death. The difference is that one way of dying includes embracing your faith, doing what is right, and potentially living into something bigger than the existence that you've carved out for yourself. The other way of death, it's just death. Cold, cowardly death. At first, this might not seem especially relevant for us, but truth be told, it is. Because in many ways, we face the same dilemma. When we look at the potential consequences of standing up and doing what our faith asks, we end up similarly choosing between death and death. Do I stand up, take off the mask, and watch my comfort, or my wealth, or my time, or my reputation die? Or do I choose inaction, And maybe keep my time, comfort, wealth, reputation. But then have to watch the purpose, meaning, and wonder that comes with living life for God slowly die as I choose to push it further and further down on my list of priorities. The so-called life that this world offers us, if we compromise our faith, it really isn't life at all. Sure, it may help us avoid short-term discomfort and persecution, but there is nothing soul-satisfying to be found there. We were made for something more than a comfortable, self-serving existence. We were made to live for God. And living lives void of divine purpose will cause our lives to be little better than depressing and regrettable things. And the choice that Esther helps us see, it's a choice between death and death. A death defined by courage and a willingness to sacrifice on behalf of God and others, or a death defined by numbness and withdrawal. Both paths eventually do lead to death, 
But only one path, the path of risk, offers deep satisfaction and real life. Basically, Mordecai's point is this. Choosing to keep our faith hidden does not result in life, only a different kind of death. If you choose an action with your faith, you may avoid one set of consequences, but to do so, you embrace a whole different set of them. Mordecai goes on to say this, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Did you hear that? If you choose to do nothing, it's not going to stop God from accomplishing what he's going to accomplish. But it is going to keep you from living out the very things God has put you here to do. When we choose to keep our faith hidden, we often miss the very things God wants for us to experience. Now, one of the biggest lies that our culture has taught us is this. That life is about being happy and entertained and satisfied and that we should work our tukuses off so that we can afford bigger TVs, more streaming services, and pay for more things for our kids to do. And maybe someday, if we do it just right, we can retire early and spend the waning years of our existence wandering some beautiful, insulated, warm beach community of our choosing so that we can play golf and do crafts until our unassuming end. Comfortable, happy, entertained. (laughs) Don't miss what Mordecai is saying about this. He's telling Esther, sure, inaction might help you remain fat and happy. And yes, God will use someone else to accomplish his purposes. But if that is the route you choose, you will miss the very things that God wants for you to experience. Because life isn't about being comfortable. It's not about some form of superficial happiness or about being entertained and well-fed and spending your last days collecting seashells at the seashore. Sure, on the surface, that sounds great. And those things, they're not necessarily bad. But we are created for something more than just being comfortable, happy, and entertained. And our souls long for something more than that. We're created to have life-giving, neighbor-loving, self-sacrificial, God-honoring lives where we strive to live out the purposes God places before us. And when those things are compatible with being fat, happy, and entertained, that's great. But if we choose to compromise a life of faith to preserve those worldly pleasures we end up missing out on the truly soul-satisfying life that God intends for us. When we choose to keep our life hidden, our life with God hidden, we often miss the very things that God wants for us to experience. Now, I want to break down a few steps for you to take if Esther's story is really resonating with you today. If you're sitting here and thinking, I'm in a place where I don't want to live with a hidden faith anymore, Consider taking time to think about these steps. First, you need to identify the area in your life where you feel like you're hiding, compromising, or avoiding living out the life Jesus has for you. You can't start to change something 
that you haven't identified. And once you've identified it, and this step is really important, tell another Christian who you trust about it. This is a step we often neglect, but it's a powerful one because sometimes sermons like this, they get us all fired up, but then they also cause us to not act in wisdom. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, Esther doesn't just act boldly, she acts wisely. In the simple step of sitting down with a trusted, mature Christian friend who can help us think through this and what it really looks like to live out in in our life with more faith, it helps us approach it with wisdom and not just boldness. So tell another Christian and the two of you pray and think about it. And finally, there comes a time where we just need to do it. I wish I could explain this step more, but the truth is, sometimes you just got to do it. Now, as we close up, I want to make sure that we see one more piece of Esther's story here. When we think of Esther's life, one of the excuses that she could have easily used is this. Why would God even want to use me? I have already compromised so much. God really doesn't want to use a person like me. That's actually one of the main questions that the original readers of Esther were dealing with. Did God still want to be faithful and continue to use them? You see, Esther was written in a time where the Jews had been scattered all over the known world, where they were living in cities where they had no temple to make sacrifices at, where the cultural pressure to not live like Jews was huge, and in order to survive, they had compromised and lost track of much of how God had asked them to live. That's why, if you read Esther's contemporary, the book of Ezra, there was such an emotional reaction to the reading of God's law. Because while living in Persia, they had lost track of so much of what made them unique as God's people. And so one of the theological questions that was very much at the forefront of these Jews who were scattered through Persia was this. What's our status with God now that we have broken our covenant with him, endured a painful exile, and have in so many ways compromised and abandoned the way he taught us to live? Will God still be faithful to us? Will he still want me? Will God still want to use me even after I have failed to live the life that he wants me to? The book of Esther answers that question with a resounding yes. God is still faithful despite our moral and cultural compromises. God does still want to use you. And if he can embolden a cowardly, compromised Jewish man named Mordecai to stand up and refuse to worship Haman, and if he can take a woman who is thrust into a life that in many ways goes against God's teachings and use her to deliver his people, then he is absolutely faithful to you and absolutely wants to use you, even if you have compromised and hidden your faith. God is faithful. God wants to use you. God is asking to use you. And although embracing God's plan for us comes at a cost, true life, comes when we embrace that plan. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Esther. 
and how it challenges us and encourages us. I pray that we as a church may be people who seek not only to live out our faith boldly, but to live it out boldly in wisdom. Help us identify areas in our lives where we've been avoiding, hiding, or compromising our faith. Help us see the ways that we should change. And help remind us that even if we struggle with that, you do love us, want to walk with us, and want to continue to use us. We pray this in your name. Amen.